It's January 22nd, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Brian Butling to tell us about the upcoming Startup Weekend event. Finally, we will learn about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and perhaps even Dogecoin. How exactly do these things work? We'd, of course, love your questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, the 36th annual conference of the Pacific Telecommunications Council wrapped up earlier today with its closing lunch and awards ceremony, wrapping up three days of meetings, presentations, and exhibits serving the global telecommunications industry. The theme of this year's conference was New World, New Strategies, and while the event was international in scope, Hawaii was represented well in a program in sessions ranging from broadband sessions to university research. Jennifer Winter of the UH School of Communications moderated several industry briefings on Sunday. That same day, Alan Winery led a session on Internet Protocol V6, or IPv6, and mobile technologies. Winery was uh, now the U.S. co-chair of the International IPv6 Working Group, but he previously led Internet engineering projects at UH for more than 20 years. Then on Monday, University of Hawaii Interim President and Chief Information Officer David Lassner was the lead presenter in a session on telecommunications and universities as levers of change. And today, Alex Burgo, CEO of Hawaii-based LiveSift, gave a presentation on the future demand and use for broadband in Hawaii. Burgo told uh, Bite Mars Cafe that memorable sessions at this, this year's PTC covered topics ranging from open source as a business model, gamification at the enterprise level, new models for cloud computing environments, and regulatory frameworks for smaller nation states. The PTC regularly draws over 1,600 attendees, and this year they brought in about 1,734, most of them company directors, officers, VPs, while half of the uh, participants came from the U.S. The rest of the delegation is a rich mix of representatives from throughout Europe, Asia, and the Pacific Rim. Now, I got a chance to sit in on uh, somebody that I've been kind of following. She's one of the data.gov evangelists and has been working quite heavily with uh, the um, the folks in Washington, D.C., as well as uh, uh, she's also working with NASA. But uh, her name is uh, Jean Holm, and she did a talk on on uh, open data and how that might benefit the telecommunications industry. Yeah, they had a lot of keynotes. Uh, Steve Smith, the CEO and president of Equinix, was there talking about cloud services. Um, I, I really enjoy looking through the program just to see what are, what's coming up as trends. Certainly submarine network cables, always of interest to us, mm-hmm. is always on the agenda. There was an interesting session about how satellite and not fiber should be the focus for uh, broadband expansion. So, you know, rather than laying fiber everywhere, satellite can still be a reasonable option, which is something that I often sometimes still forget about as a technology. Well, you know, and the other thing that this uh, conference is really notable for is the fact that it brings in all these folks from the Pacific Rim as well as Asia. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of the conferences of this nature really is all about the deals that right. might be made. In fact, if you uh, do a search, a lot of what goes on or what seems to come out of this event, although there's a lot of meetings and working groups, is just announcements of uh, new products, new services. There was an announcement to the upgrade of the New Zealand uh, you know, broadband cable. Mm-hmm. Being I think able Southern to Cross maybe got some. You know, uh, we're always reporting about that, but you know, they got some new electronics on the ends of their fiber and yep. increasing the uh, bandwidth. Excellent stuff. 
A Maui-based technology fund for Hawaii startups yesterday announced the close of a $10 million early-stage venture capital fund. M. Bloom Ventures LLC is a public-private partnership with the Hawaii Strategic Development Corporation and New York-based investor Devin Archer. M. Bloom co-founders Arbin Kreisu and Nick Bikonik say they created the fund in the hopes of keeping great talent on Maui. They want to provide Hawaii startups with strategies, mentorship, and access to business networks. Well, Kreisu said in a statement, innovation happens in Hawaii. Hawaii, but many companies leave the islands for growth opportunities on the mainland. We want to keep Hawaii startups here, giving them the opportunities to develop, connect, and make a mark just like the startups in Silicon Valley. Steve Case, founder and uh, or former co-founder of AOL and now chairman and CEO of Revolution, a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm, also issued a statement congratulating Krychik and um, Bikonic on their new venture. Case wrote, I've long believed that great entrepreneurs and innovators can be found throughout the United States, and Hawaii is no exception. The M. Bloom Fund marks an important step for building momentum in the Hawaii technology community. Prior to fa- uh, co-founding M. Bloom, Kreitzu was founder, chief architect, and senior strategist of Bump Networks, a web, mobile, and app firm. Bikonic, meanwhile, was founder and CEO of Flickdate, which offers real-time video dating on smartphones. Well, you know, I um, we had we had Carl Fuchs on uh, last week, and they were talking. We were talking about some of the uh, the entrepreneurial sort of ecosystem, and and uh, he had mentioned M Bloom, and I was wondering whether they were part of his accelerator program. But actually, it turns out that they are you know part of the the uh, venture capital fund, and uh, this fund is really there to look at putting money investments into the companies that actually come out of the accelerator. So they're very, real excited about this. Right. And the the New York um, partner, the New York investor, Devin Archer, he's known for being the co-founder and senior managing director of Rosemont Capital. But there was a clarification that isn't a Rosemont Capital investment. It is something that he is personally doing. I thought it was interesting. You know, Biconic, uh, in addition to FlickDate, he's done a number of other startups, mm-hmm. other apps. Um, you know, FlickDate and real-time video dating isn't something I'm necessarily investigating. But uh, he he was even a filmmaker. He has uh, credits, a producer and uh, directing credits on a on a film called Shadow Company, which won a few awards back in two thousand and five. So definitely a diverse talent base, and we've certainly been seeing more and more of this activity out of Maui. Right, and of course, you know the the more capital that is now available for these kinds of investments, the better. Well, next up, the Keck Observatory on the summit of Mauna Kea on Hawaii Island played a role in two prominent astronomy discoveries announced this past week. The first involved the direct imaging of a very large, rare type of brown star, brown dwarf, or so-called failed star. The second involved the discovery of a distant quasar that was found to be illuminating a vast nebula of diffuse gas, revealing a vast network of filaments streaming through space that connects several galaxies together in a cosmic web. The brown dwarf, identified as HD 19467b, is a companion to a nearby sun-like star, but is more than 100,000 times as dim as its host. In findings published in a recent issue of the Astrophysical Journal, the research team says it will help serve as a benchmark for studying objects with masses that fall between stars and planets. Lead researcher Justin Kreps said in a statement, Eventually, we want to directly image and acquire the spectrum of Earth-like planets. Then, from the spectrum, we should be able to tell what the planet is made out of, what its mass is, what its radius and age is, basically all relevant physical properties. As for the quasar, the the Keck was used to measure it along with a very large luminous 
nebula of gas that stretches about 2 million light years across intergalactic space. Those findings were published this week in the journal Nature. The lead author of the study, Sebastiano uh, uh, <laughs> Cantanopo, said in a statement, this is a very exceptional object. It's huge, uh, less, um, at least twice as large as any nebula detected before. It extends well beyond the galactic environment of the quasar. Now, you know, talking about quasars and sort of this intergalactic web is always kind of interesting because uh, you you, th- you look out into space and, you know, it's hard to imagine that there's actually some kind of connecting matter that, that connects all of this, uh, uh, the universes together. And, right, uh, and it goes back to one of our uh, trademark topics, dark matter mm-hmm. and things that, that can't necessarily directly be observed. They're saying that this uh, nebula, the reason why they're excited is that the gas in what they're observing is 10 times more than what they expected in simulations of similar structures. So this enormous thing that's connecting different galaxies, there's more gas than they thought. And uh, the brown dwarf, you know, things that are not quite stars but are bigger than planets, they're kind of still trying to uh, basically understand these space bodies and 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 uh, how to measure them. So when you can measure a brown dwarf, it lets you uh, create that that uh, that the the ratios, so you can start to talk about exoplanets. Well, yeah, and you know, of course, we could we could <laughs> kind of change the name of our show to Exoplanet Palooza. But I think that's interesting is that if they can do sort of uh, spectral analysis of, of brown dwarfs, which basically a brown dwarf is a failed star. It's a very, very kind of large uh, planet, I guess, if you would uh, mm-hmm. think of it that way. But it doesn't emit a whole lot of light. And just like exoplanets, they don't ex- emit a whole lot of light either. But if there's ways that you can detect what they are made of and, and what the, you know, the potential uh, maybe uh, atmospheric conditions might be, Based on some of those kinds of studies, then you could extrapolate that perhaps to uh, exoplanets. Yeah, and again, two uh, space headlines coming out of the Keck this week, which shows that they're quite busy up there. The State Public Utilities Commission is currently holding public informational meetings this week on plans to build an undersea power cable to link the power grids of Oahu and Maui. The first of two meetings was held yesterday at Farrington High School here in Honolulu. The second meeting is set for tomorrow evening. It'll be at 6 p.m. at Po Maika'i Elementary School in Kahului on Maui. Well, the PUC announced the meetings last week as part of its formal investigation of whether an Oahu-Maui inter-island transmission system is in the public interest and under what conditions. Among the questions the commission says it hopes to answer are whether benefits to Hawaii ratepayers would exceed its costs, what technological and operational risks are involved, and what regulatory and rate-making policies should be adopted to cover any potential undersea transmission system. State Energy Administrator Mark Glick last night outlined a number of reasons why his office supports the cable project, ranging from savings for ratepayers on both islands to increased grid reliability and flexibility, as well as advancing the state's aggressive renewal energy goals. In addition to Glick's remarks on Governor Neil Abercrombie's administration's hopes for an Oahu-Maui interconnection, state consumer advocate Jeffrey Ono explained how his division will also conduct an independent investigation on behalf of Hawaii's ratepayers. Well, you know, I think the uh, um, this whole effort is taking a new approach to the viability of the uh, undersea power cable. I think uh, initially there was some uh, maybe emotional response to a cable from Maui uh, perhaps uh, you know, well, wrong, wrongly uh, uh, looking at Oahu as being sort of like this big hungry, hungry maw of of energy. Well, actually, there's a there, so the, the the really controversial project was the Lanai uh, Molokai mm-hmm, Big mm-hmm. Wind project, and and that cable would literally just be drawing power from those islands to Oahu, which certainly uh, is not the best. 
sharing of of the system. What we're talking about now is an interconnect, and in fact, it would be it, power would flow both ways to balance these systems. Right, Maui I think. And I think what they are are now approaching this as a uh, sort of a resilience uh, network, and both grids would benefit because if for whatever reason, Maui lost power, they could draw power from Oahu and likewise. So it's kind of a beneficial thing to have more, uh, you know, be more resilient against, you know, the possibility of this kind of catastrophic island-wide outage. And the other interesting thing about these meetings and this entire initiative is that it is directed or led by the PUC itself. It's not like they got a specific proposal or a request from a vendor or a builder or a utility. They want to be able to get this kind of information about how this kind of interconnect might work. And in fact, they even mentioned that if we're talking Maui and Oahu that uh, down the line they may be talking about Big Island mm-hmm, and Oahu, mm-hmm. for example. And again, it's not, you know, it's not being driven by anybody's uh, particular timetable. It's kind of taken a more organic approach to whether or not uh, the, the, you know, sort of the, the little steps are taken to really accommodate uh, the worthiness of this project. Right. Next up, a couple of quick items we wanted to share with you. Next week in Hilo brings the monthly Tech Tuesday meetup at Hawaii Tech Works. Featured presentations include one by Todd Stellanova on civilian drones and another by Ted Combs on his experience with a startup accelerator program. RSVPs are required to participate in the first Tech Tuesday of 2014. So for more information, you can visit hawaiitechworks.org or email community at hawaiitechworks.org. And of course, Stellanova will be on our show next week focusing on drones. Ruby on Rails is one of the world's most popular frameworks to build web applications. And now the Sullivan Center at Iolani School is hosting Hear Me Roar, a Ruby on Rails workshop for women. The RailsBridge Honolulu Workshop will be held next Thursday and Friday. That's January 31st and February 1st, helping beginners get started or helping Ruby programmers level up their skills. For more information, you can visit bridgetroll.org. Well, now joining us in the studio is Brian Butling, and he's here to tell us about the next Startup Weekend. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. Well, so you've uh, how many how many uh, startup weekends have there been already? Uh, we have had four so far here in Hawaii, okay. and we're looking for a fifth one. Now, uh, you've um, done a couple of them already, right? Donnell Sherman was uh, kind of doing it before, but you've taken the helm of uh, Startup Weekend. Now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we've really been privileged to have Danielle as a really uh, a leader in the startup community here. Uh, she started it back in uh, 2011. And I came on board. This is actually my first one as the head organizer. Okay. Yeah. Now, as the head organizer, anything uh, sort of different on the uh, agenda? What do you have in mind for, for this goal? Uh, this one, I wanted to come out with a bang. Uh, so I decided to fly out uh, some really, really cool judges. Uh, so this year, I'm happy to say that we have Eric Nakagawa, a uh, uh, local boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, ICANN has Cheeseburger and Simple Honey. Uh, he'll be out here. Uh, we also have Steve Markowitz, a uh, resident here of Hawaii. Uh, one of the main uh, investors in Volta. Uh, we also have Melly James. Uh, she's the program's manager and director over at Blue Startups, the accelerator. Uh, we got a, a big name uh, as well with everyone else, uh, George Kellerman of uh, 500 Startups. Uh, he's going to be out here. Uh, we also have Devin Egan. Uh, cool story with him. He won a startup weekend in Las Vegas in 2012 and then got funding uh, and now is in the uh, Vegas Tech Fund, which uh, Tony Shea runs. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. to sum it all up, we have uh, the very, very talented, and I'm really, really happy to say uh, Bernard Wee of Wall to Wall. 
is going to be a judge. Ah, Bernard, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're big fans of the Startup Weekend program, and in fact, a lot of times coming out of them, we uh, invite some of the startups that participated to come on our show. So mm-hmm. it's it's good to have this ongoing conversation about entre- entrepreneurial activity and startup ideas here in Hawaii. Uh, startup Weekend uh, is you come together and you basically try to launch a startup in one weekend. And um, to participate in this, uh, you don't particularly look for a specific requirement or qualification. It's not who you know and, and such. I mean, if you have an idea, um, you're encouraged to participate, correct? Yeah. So the general premise of Startup Weekend is taking an idea and bring it to market, uh, regardless of what that idea is. It could be the new, next Facebook. It could not be. Um, the whole idea is education and executing the plan within 54 hours. So we get about 100 people to show up Friday night, and we do fire pitches. Um, and we get about uh, 15 companies that come out of that. And throughout the 54 hours of that weekend, uh, we bring in mentors, coaches to guide them along this way to hopefully by Sunday, actually have a working demo. Now, when companies, or actually when individuals come to a startup weekend, uh, they may not know who the others are, and sometimes they will form very spontaneously a team of people. Mm -hmm. So that's one sort of version of a grouping. Mm -hmm. Another one would be somebody could actually come with a sort of a little preformed group. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. So we 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 encourage everybody. I mean, the, the best experience I prefer is to come and not have a team built. But um, I'm, I'm not going to say that we're not going to accept anybody. We definitely encourage anyone who has a team to come. Uh, really, I mean, that's the whole purpose of Startup Weekend is validation. Um, if you have a team and you have an idea, it's a good place to validate that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if uh, a, a group of individuals came and, and were put together just as a result of the exercises you guys uh, go through, the likelihood of them actually forming a uh, a company after Startup Weekend, what what would you say the probabilities of that happening? Uh, I would say about maybe three companies actually form and and you know try to succeed after the Startup Weekend. Um, you guys mentioned earlier in your show, M Bloom. Mm-hmm. I'm getting funding, so they're actually a major sponsor of the weekend, and they actually funded uh, one of the last winner of Startup Weekend, Rapley, which is from Maui. Uh, so they're actually guiding her with funding. Mm-hmm. Now, Brian, you know, you are an organizer. You are clearly going to be running around making sure that everything goes without a hitch. But I, I have to imagine you would get into this event because of that excitement of, of building a company quickly and, you know, iterating quickly. Uh, do you still have an opportunity to participate actively? Or are you going to be on a team or will you join a team? Um, I'm, uh, I would love to. I've actually participated in three. Um, I'm happy to say I, I, I won one with my team. Um, and my reward is I get to organize Startup Weekend now. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's 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 it's, it's an exciting time, um, especially here for Hawaii. There's so much going on with with startups. The energy out there. Uh, we have great sponsors: uh, Bloom, like I said, High Growth, uh, Startup Venture Capital, Sultan Ventures, Blue Startups, Box Jelly. So all of the main players in the ecosystem really, really are invested in this weekend because a lot of the people who normally don't come out to these events will be out here. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, give us the uh, rundown. Where, when? Uh, it's going to be at the Box Jelly, February 7th, 8th, and 9th. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to start at 6 o'clock. Um, we're still accepting registrants. Uh, you can go ahead and find us at honolulu.startupweekend.org. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our hashtag is at SWHNL or on Facebook at SWHNL. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks, Brian, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by... McKay Davis and Sam Durham to tell us about 
everything you wanted to know about cryptocurrencies. What is this Bitcoin? How viable is it here in our 21st century economy? We'd, of course, love your questions as part of the conversation as well. So please give us a call, 941-3689, or toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter, and you can tweet us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Business news. It's not all banks and budgets and bottom lines, you know. At Marketplace, we think it can be lots of things. The big trends are leather and lace. I think that the studio knows that movie was a mistake. I love to work like no one really should. Oreos and milk. I'm Kai Rizdon. Whether you need news or the numbers or just a little chuckle. We'll have it for you next time on Marketplace from APM. Weekday evenings at 6. Hello, this is Nick Yee, host of Bridging the Gap on HPR2. I'm breaking out of the studio with fellow host Sandy Sukiyama to host a downtown dance party on Saturday, February 15th. I'll be spending Latin fusion and Sandy will perform Brazilian and Latin jazz with her band Viva Domingo. Join us at 1144 in Bamboo 2 from 6 to 9 p.m. Tickets available at hprtickets.org or call 955-8821 during business hours. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is McKay Davis and Sam Durham, both McKay and Sam started Bitcoin Hawaii to share the story of cryptocurrencies around the community. How viable is Bitcoin as a currency? Should we all be seriously considering it? Of course, we'd love your questions and comments as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. McKay and Sam, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having us. Thanks. We're happy to be here. Well, you know, before we dive into the technical aspects of cryptocurrencies. I want to give you guys both a chance to tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you ended up hooking up with each other and starting up uh, Bitcoin Hawaii. Maybe, uh, McKay, you want to start with uh, giving us a little bit of background on how you got involved with uh, Bitcoin Hawaii? Sure. So I'm a computer science background. Uh, I came here to the island to work on uh, some computer programming for a local engineering firm. Mm -hmm. And I just started looking at Bitcoin because it was just something that really interested me. And I went to a local talk at the Box Jelly, and uh, the talk was it was decent, but uh, that's where I met Sam, and we kind of started talking and thinking, like, you know, we could we could really do a lot better. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, Sam, uh, you have an interesting background. Um, I did a couple of years of computer science at UH. Uh, I was building websites when I was in college, and doing that commercially, I had my own business. Um, I got a little disinterested in it as a major, and started to look for other things. I've always been really into any kind of science, so I actually ended up in agriculture. Hmm. So I have a farm now in Hawaii Kai that I run, and I do Bitcoin Hawaii, and um, I also develop. I work a little bit with like the Internet of Things. I do a lot mm-hmm. of uh, hardware, software development for small um, projects on the farm, and work with a couple other people on some other projects. Cool. So although we will perhaps talk a little bit about Bitcoin farming, your farming is of the traditional variety. Correct. I like that. I like that. Well, one of these days we might also ask you about uh, whether or not your plants are tweeting. But we'll get to that later on. Uh, I wanted to find out, though, when you folks first kind of uh, met each other and thought, you know, maybe we should get uh, this um, idea of uh, Bitcoin Hawaii to get, you know, off the ground. Was it what was it that you saw as uh, perhaps lacking in the community that really drove your decision to found Bitcoin Hawaii? 
Well, I, I think Bitcoin, it's a complicated subject. Mm-hmm. And it really takes someone who has a good understanding of the, the entire ecosystem to be able to explain it. Because once you start answering one question, another one pops up. And so I think what Sam and I really were able to identify is that we both have a pretty good overall understanding and the areas of knowledge that I lack, he, he picks up on. And so I'm kind of on the more technical side and he's kind of more on the economic side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we started talking is like, you know, there's a lot of people who are really interested and they ask these questions at these talks and no one's there to really answer the questions. And so we want to bring those those answers to the, the public. Now, Sam, um, we're talking about Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency. It's a digital medium of exchange, um, but it's still, you know, kind of hard to wrap your brain around. I think uh, one of the ways that uh, we might be able to dive into this is, you know, uh, what is the problem that Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are trying to solve? I mean, what's the differentiator between, say, giant, you know, uh, Egyptian stone money versus maybe gold coins that people carry around versus what a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin can do for uh, uh, an economy or a community? Well, one thing we like to discuss is cryptocurrency is not backed by any government or company or commodity. It's not backed by gold. It's not backed by a physical thing that has a price on it. So a lot of people see this as a negative aspect of a currency. Oh, it doesn't have anything of value, which I could end up with in the end. So why would I want to pay for something with it? But this is actually one of its benefits, and this is one of the complexities of cryptocurrency in general is there really is nothing backing it besides the code. It is an open source project. Everyone can go look at the code. You can see how it works. And the fact that it's secure and it can be used in a medium of exchange securely is its value. And once you start to look at other things based on commodities, so let's say if you have a a currency based on gold, the price of gold fluctuates. And not only does it fluctuate, but it fluctuates against currency pairs and other commodities independently. So by having a cryptocurrency, you can still pair it against other things. You can pair it against gold. You can pair it against the U.S. dollar. But in reality, its value is based on the market and based on the inherent value that it gives to that market, which a lot of times is its benefits. It's secure. You have the money. You own the money. And no one can control it. And in the case of a government, as we've seen recently, you know, the U.S. is having problems monetarily coming up with future plans on what we want to do with our debt. We've gone into several issues with defaulting, and we start to see that basing a currency on a government or on a group of people isn't necessarily risky, but it is inherently more volatile that way because of the way that the world runs. No one ever lasts forever. You know, I'm sure when the Romans were great, everyone said this money is going to be good for the rest of time. And look what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting uh, that, uh, you know, when you start talking about currencies and you start to compare, let's say, a cryptocurrency with uh, another currency like like Egyptian stones or, you know, the, the, the Yappies people had big stones as, as currency, too. And somebody must have designated that big stone to be of, of value. And, and similarly, when you talk about a gold standard, and even for the U.S. dollar, which isn't part of any standard anymore, uh, what is it that really attributes a value to that dollar? And it's almost arbitrary. Right. And that's one of the things that, you know, cryptocurrencies not only solved a lot of problems, but they solved problems we had never perceived as problems in currency before. So if you think about you know, perceiving the U.S. government as the base of value for the dollar because we're no longer on the gold standard is an interesting prospect because what happens if, you know, you're voting one direction and constantly the government is moving a different way? Eventually, you don't know if you agree with them or not, but you're still forced to use their currency. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's also the same for almost anything. If you're trading a commodity or if you're trading any other, um, you know, item of value, you have to 
be in some kind of alignment with what it's worth based on other, you know, other items of value. We're talking to McKay Davis and Sam Durham, co-founders of Bitcoin Hawaii, spreading the uh, understanding and appreciation of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies here in Hawaii. Uh, if you've got a question about this topic, you can give us a call at 941-3689. We'll accept Bitcoin donations as well. Mm-hmm. If you're calling the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Or if you're calling from even beyond that, you can also tweet us and get in touch. In fact, uh, we're happy to welcome someone actually name-checked earlier in the show by random chance, uh, Eric from uh, San Francisco. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, guys. Hey, Eric. So this is Eric of I Can't Has Cheeseburger uh-huh. and uh, other meme fame. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, I'm also, uh, I got involved with uh, virtual currency after my last company, Made in Hawaii, was acquired um, by a virtual currency company in San Francisco. So oh, I'm a good. big fan of it. <laughs> All right, so tell us, uh, I mean, certainly I would imagine cryptocurrencies are much more the rage and much more uh, part of day-to-day life uh, in, in San Francisco. So um, what is it that's got you all passionate about it? I think what, you know, what the guy said about um, the different uh, PowerPoints and interesting points about Bitcoin is initially what, what got me attracted to it. But now that I'm seeing the community that's growing, such as you know, folks like Bitcoin Hawaii creating a place where people can meet and learn about something that, you know, it, it it could be revolutionary. It could be a world-changing technology that maybe only happens in someone's life, you know, once or twice, right? So the reason that I got super excited is this is different. This is new. This could do so many different things. So there's so many possibilities. Yeah, people are referring it to as the Internet of Money. It's it's a revolutionary concept with with currency. Now, now, uh, McKay, you know, at a at a real fundamental basic level, you have you have. Uh, People mining for Bitcoin, and as I understand it, there are only 21 million Bitcoins that could actually get mined. Tell us a little bit about how that number was arrived at. Uh, that, that number was, was essentially created by Satoshi. Mm-hmm. I, I forget exactly how it was derived, but there is a fixed number of Bitcoins. Bitcoins can be divided into smaller than one Bitcoin. The, the smallest unit right now is 100 millionth of a Bitcoin. A lot of people refer to it as a, a Satoshi, actually. Uh, but... Currently, there are about 12 million Bitcoins in circulation. Uh, each block that gets added to the public ledger, which is the public ledger essentially records all the transactions within the Bitcoin uh, chain. It's called the blockchain. It's mm-hmm. referred to as the mm-hmm. blockchain. And that's really what Bitcoin is at its core, is the blockchain. And it's all it is is just an accounting of all the balances between everybody. And that gets added on to by the miners. And so as a, you know, as a fee for mining those bitcoins and validating the transactions, the miners get to create new bitcoins for every single block. And so, right now, we're at about 12 million. By the year 2140, we we will reach 21 million. Mm-hmm. Now, Eric, I know um, you know you can see that it's it's certainly a very hot topic. There are a number of different startups focused on on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Um, but when we're talking about mining and the limited number, and uh, it's definitely something that because of its volatility and can have a value of maybe thirteen dollars at the start of last year to over a thousand dollars a few weeks ago. Um, on one hand. The startup community, I can see being excited as an opportunity to perhaps get rich quickly, but also, I think, brings with it a lot of risk. So um, for you, from, uh, from a startup point of view, uh, is this something that you're, you're cautious about, or is this something that um, you think is, 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 is definitely going to uh, work out in the long term? So that's an interesting point. I think the, the most interesting thing about Bitcoin is that even though the price is volatile, the, the way that businesses get involved 
they can actually limit or remove a lot of their risk by quickly selling whatever Bitcoin they receive back into U.S. dollars. So I think for most businesses, I don't think the volatility is really going to hurt them. It's a technology that allows the payments at a really, really low to almost no fee. Um, that I think is the most interesting and compelling part for folks that start companies in virtual or cryptocurrencies. So it's, it's really about the, the lower fee cost than the price fluctuation. That's just an aspect of it that you know, as more people get involved or interest, interested in it, they start speculating. And that's kind of why what's driven all the attention on that side. Now, you know, McKay, you, um, you mentioned a fellow by the name of Satoshi. And, you know, what's kind of interesting about the, uh, the whole idea of cryptocurrencies, and, and Sam, you, you kind of alluded to this, is that, you know, currencies that are dependent on a government, uh, you know, have its uh, sort of weaknesses. And we have uh, a fellow by the name of Satoshi, which is maybe, you know, McKay, you can, you can share a little bit about the, the background on that. But there is an element of sort of this uh, underground that is, is um, the foundation upon which this cryptocurrency is built. And, and I, I'm kind of curious to, to get your thoughts on how people might perceive this as being something that is, is it trustworthy or, or, or isn't it? And, and maybe start with, you know, Satoshi. Well, uh, I'll start real quick with the Satoshi story. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto is really, it's a pseudonym. Uh, nobody actually knows who created Bitcoin. Uh, he published a paper back in uh, late 2008, November 1st, 2008, mm-hmm. published a cryptography mailing list on the Internet. And, uh, you know, he was very active for a number of years uh, on the mailing list. And then he kind of slowly started handing the reins over to one of the, the current lead developer, Gavin Anderson. Mm-hmm. And uh, a- at the same time, Gavin actually was going to give a, a presentation to the CIA. Satoshi basically dropped off uh, the face of the Internet and nobody has heard from him since then. And so it does have this kind of mysterious beginnings uh, because nobody knows if Satoshi is one person. Uh, they think he's probably not Japanese, uh, even though the name implies that. His, his English online is kind of more British English. And so there's been a lot of speculation as to who it could be and a lot of denials as well. So it does kind of have this air of mystery about it. And then the, the other aspect of it is, you know, when you're talking about money or talking about currency, it's so uh, intrinsic and interleaved within our society that if you start, you know, replacing one system with another, it has a lot of uh, fallout, so to say. You know, it, it has a lot of uh, effect, a ripple effect down the line. Right. So, uh, you know, I don't know if... I think it's interesting, too, because within the United States, there's laws on the books preventing you from creating a competing currency. It's actually against the law. So if, if Satoshi had been identified early on, the government could have arrested him and shut down the project, and it probably would have been the early death of Bitcoin. But by re- remaining anonymous, it keeps the doors open for people to work with the protocol, to develop it, and to come out with something that really is not just competition for the U.S. dollar, but for the world economic market. It's something that can be traded across borders through the Internet flawlessly, and it's you know open source and more secure a lot of times than the traditional alternatives. But um, as we've all mentioned, I think the fact that the fees are so low and that the transfers are nearly instant is really what grabs the attention of businesses. You know, if you have a very large business and you're doing a lot of um, online sales, the fact that you could knock out a 3% fee is a big, big hit on your, you know, your initial um, profit because you can look at someone selling maybe $50 worth of product a day and it's not too much. But if someone's selling $50,000 worth a day, 3% starts to add up real quick. 
We're talking to McKay Davis and Sam Durham of Bitcoin Hawaii, and also on the line from San Francisco, Eric Nakagawa uh, of ICANN has cheeseburger fame, but uh, always involved in the startup and entrepreneurial community. And we're talking about Bitcoins and cryptocurrencies. If you've got a question, you can give us a call at 941-3689 here on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Now, Sam, you mentioned that it's you know open source, that it's uh, public, the, the blockchain, the ledger, everybody can see in verify that these balances exist. They don't know who they're tied to, but they can be verified. Their movements are public. Um, but the but I think we, one thing that we should stress is that Bitcoin is the most visible, perhaps the most popular right now, um, currently trading at a value of about $948 per Bitcoin. But because it is math, because it's a process, because it's a concept, there's a number of other cryptocurrencies out there. And Eric, um, if it wasn't for you on Twitter throwing around some of these cryptocurrencies and even tipping friends of yours, I wouldn't know about some of them. Can you can you share some of your favorite alternate cryptocurrencies? Sure. I think well, first off, Bitcoin is the the you know the uh, the most important kind of virtual currency out there because it was first and. A lot of folks spend a lot of time on it. Um, but that being said, a lot of folks actually can't get involved, so it's actually hard to mine that particular coin. Mm-hmm. So there have been a couple alternatives that were generated. One is uh, Litecoin, and there's a couple other um, other ones out there. These make it easier for people that have maybe machines that are built to mine Bitcoin initially that could no longer mine now can actually get back into it. Um, one of my favorite ones, and it's kind of a joke, but it's called <laughs> Dogcoin or Dogcoin. I mean, this one is a, a very interesting one that's still kind of early. It's only like a month old. But if you look online, there are many being generated. A lot of them are being, you know, kind of copied or they're just kind of like trends or fads, fad-related. But at the end of the day, it comes down to community. And right now, there's a very strong and very large Bitcoin community, a very strong and um, very large Litecoin community, and a small and growing dog kind of community that's kind of built, <laughs> again, around a joke. But we'll see that where this one goes. There's a lot of fun out there, though. And one thing I want to point out is all, all these Litecoin is based off the Bitcoin source code. Uh, Dogcoin is based off the Litecoin source code. So Bitcoin was not only the first, but you know it is the reference implementation. And I like to think of Bitcoin really as a reserve currency. And if you want to get into like Dogcoin, uh, you can trade that for Bitcoin, which then you can trade for U.S. dollars. So Bitcoin is really becoming the reserve currency of the digital currencies online. Mm-hmm. And uh, I definitely, I just wanted to note, you know, Eric had been tipping, sending tips via Twitter. Uh, thank you for the thousand Dogecoin donation, which uh, briefly at least surpassed a total value of a dollar at one point. So I'm, I'm going to cash in. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Eric, for um, calling into our show. It's always good to hear from you. And of course, uh, and of course, if you have a uh, question or comment about uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, you can give us a call. Number is nine four one three six eight nine. Or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. We want to welcome uh, Jerry from uh, Mililani to Bite Marks Cafe. Yes, um, I'm sorry, I, I haven't been following the conversation online. I've, I'm having trouble uh, uh, hearing it. So, if this has already been uh, discussed, I want to know that. Uh, so I think I heard recently that uh, somehow Bitcoin was. Uh, I designated uh, as a commodity. Is is that uh, not true? Well, that's Excellent a great question. question. So, Sam, maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about that because initially you said that you know it's against the law to create another alternative currency, but there has been acknowledgement of Bitcoin as being a valid currency. Uh, and to to uh, Jerry's uh, question, who in the U.S. acknowledged that? 
So it's interesting. Recently, um, a couple months ago, we went through a couple Senate hearings. And this is the first time that Bitcoin was really brought to the table in the U.S. Mm-hmm. in kind of an open and indiscriminate manner. Before then, we had had a couple court cases, and it was dealing with um, you know different financial crimes that were occurring within the Bitcoin community. But this time was a little bit different. What a lot of people were trying to find out in this Senate hearing was, you know, how are we going to regulate this? What are we going to um, call it? Is it a commodity? Is it a currency? What's the precedence that will be set in the future? And also, what are the risks? A lot of people discuss Bitcoin as, oh, it's anonymous and it's been used for the black market in the past. But realistically, cash is a better alternative to Bitcoin if you're going to be doing something in the anonymous market. Um, Bitcoin with the blockchain, you can track the Bitcoin through the blockchain fairly easily. And it actually exposes you more to you know, risk of being caught if you're trying to do something illegal. So the Senate hearings were one of the best things that's happened in the U.S. so far for Bitcoin. It really opened the floor. It allowed open discussion from a lot of major agencies, the FBI, the IRS. Um, There's a couple others there. And then a few representatives from major business. So in this discussion, it was brought up as to what exactly Bitcoin is. And Bitcoin has traditionally been kind of untouched by the U.S. government. But a few court cases have come up recently. And one in particular was um, with a gentleman, his internet handle was Pirate40, who was involved in a Ponzi scheme with Bitcoin. So he was brought to court initially, and he his um, defense in court was, I can't be sued for financial crimes or prosecuted for financial crimes because Bitcoin is not a currency. And the judge actually came back and in his ruling noted that Bitcoin can be traded for money and therefore, or goods in this case, and therefore it is a means of transaction, which makes it a currency. So precedence in that case as well as the Senate hearings, and the Senate basically came out and said, we don't want to do anything to overregulate Bitcoin. They recognize that it is like the early days of the internet, and they want to support it and foster growth. And I think one of the major things that isn't picked up on very often is the U.S. wants Bitcoin to grow in the U.S. to get the tax dollars. So if we decide that Bitcoin is not going to be a currency or a commodity and we're going to try to regulate it and we're going to make it this underground thing, the businesses will move overseas and we'll lose those tax dollars. So between several of these um, different you know, occurrences within our governmental system in the U.S., we've established that Bitcoin is, in fact, either a commodity or a form of currency. It's still a little in the gray area, but we're going to get you know, taxed eventually by the IRS. And the IRS really is going to come out and that's officially going to make it more or less a form of payment, which is a currency. Yeah. Okay, good. I want to I ask you a little bit more about that, uh, uh, that issue of taxability. So I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with McKay Davis and Sam Durham about Bitcoin, Dogecoin, and maybe even Konye. Will you soon be able to pay in Bitcoin as you Go about your business here in Honolulu. We, of course, like to hear your vision of this cryptocurrency future. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. All of the different programs that are on at different times in public radio, it's like different colors in a palette. And you can paint whatever you want by picking the hours that you want to listen. And you may want to go for the dark colors of Rembrandt or the bright colors of Monet, but it's your choice how you paint that landscape with those colors, with the different shows you listen to through the day. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see.
Psychologist Oliver Hill is on a crusade to change the way we think about children's intelligence. All children are educable. We don't throw away children. We don't assume because they test poorly that they don't have the capacity to learn. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to McKay Davis and Sam Durham about the growing ecosystem for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or... One eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands, and right before the break, we we're talking about something very interesting, which is the idea of a taxability for Bitcoin. Now, when you use a Bitcoin, you can actually buy product and service from somebody else who perhaps accepts Bitcoin. So, in the case of uh, the one that was in the in the news recently, Virgin Galactic sold a seat on one of their flights. And somebody actually from Hawaii bought it with Bitcoin because they accepted, you know, the transaction in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, you know, is um, Virgin Galactic eventually going to get taxed on that sale of that seat via Bitcoin? I, I think a lot of that depends on what does Virgin do when they get that Bitcoin. Do they turn around and sell it right away mm-hmm. or do they hold on to the Bitcoin? And if they hold on to the Bitcoin, then it's probably subject to like capital gains taxes, uh, either short or long term. Uh, the when du- they when they convert it to dollars. Yeah, when they right. convert it to dollars. And so the way we've been approaching it is that when you convert it to U.S. dollars, that's when your tax mm-hmm. taxation should happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we move to a more Bitcoin-centric uh, economy, then the question comes, wh- where do those taxes come in? Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, in the, IRS, or the Senate hearings, the IRS was present. And the senators specifically asked them to come out with guidelines to address taxability within the U.S. before the next tax season. So a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are kind of waiting with bated breath to see what the IRS is going to say. But the overall decision is just kind of using the general, um, you know, the general legal landscape, and you try to compare Bitcoin to something close to it. So in this case, capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. We understand how it works. We understand why it works that way. So most people are um, just generalizing, saying, all right, I'm going to treat my you know, Bitcoin gains as capital gains tax. And this is more for people in long-term holdings who buy low sell high and have to pay a tax on the profit. But day to day, it's actually interesting with business because as McKay mentioned, it really depends on how they want to treat Bitcoin. If they want to convert it to cash immediately, they'll pay normal income tax on that cash versus if they want to convert it in the future and the price of Bitcoin rises, there's profit and then you have to pay a capital gains tax. Now, Oh, go ahead. McKay, I mean, I, I can see sort of the appeal, and certainly as business people, we're going to be interested in how this income is taxed or how it's accounted for and, and the value thereof. But I have right. a more more basic question, because if it's a cryptocurrency, if it's something that's kept online, right. you know, how does one have a Bitcoin? I mean, how do you uh, demonstrate that you have Bitcoins in your possession? And if it's in an online bank of bitcoins? How do I know that someone's just not going to hack it and take all my bitcoins away from me? So, so that's a good question, and it kind of gets a little bit into the complicated nature of bitcoin. But essentially, the blockchain holds public addresses, which hold a balance. And to receive receive coins, you just give someone that public address. And anybody can hand out this public address, and I can give that to Sam, or I can, I can expose that, essentially, to the network to receive coins. To spend coins, you have to have a private key that's associated with that public address. And that private key is held only by you 
and it can be held on your computer or whatever device you're using to send that transaction. And so what that private key does is it allows you to create a digital transaction that goes on the network that can spend those coins. So essentially the private key is used to spend the coins and the public address is used to receive the coins. And so that private key is really where your coins are held. And they can be held online on a web service for you. Someone else can hold those keys for you. Or you can actually even hold them on your phone or your computer. And that's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is it really makes you the bank. You can issue your own account numbers and you can hold your own private keys and you can receive Bitcoin on the public ledger, yet you are the only person that is capable of spending that Bitcoin. So, I mean, Bitcoin being math and sequences of numbers and I have my private key to spend, mm-hmm. would it be p- possible to print it out on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope and say, Bert, here's 10 Bitcoin? Yes, yes. It's, huh. it's totally possible to do that. And you can actually do that on a computer that is not even connected to the internet and receive the coins on the public address that is connected to the internet, but that private key actually never touches a computer that can be hacked. Uh, so you can keep online. it in your safety deposit box and, and protect that. Which is exactly what I do. Nice. Oh, mm, okay. Mm, interesting. Now, you know, we've got a, a bunch of calls, so we wanted to uh, uh, get those. I uh, want to welcome uh, Roger from Kaneohe to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, this is going to sound really stupid, but, you know, I have a small business and uh, sell a product that's for the home, for home improvement. Um, no one's ever said to me, oh, I want to buy that uh, product with Bitcoins, and I wouldn't know what to do if they did. But is it realistic to think that a bricks-and-mortar business is going to have Bitcoins coming through their store, or is this purely over the Internet? I think in the beginning, Bitcoin was used almost purely as a form of e-commerce transactions. So as you see Bitcoin develop, and especially as we mentioned, more and more people are building apps around it, more people are getting interested in it for day-to-day use, Uh, we start to see more brick-and-mortar stores that are trying to push Bitcoin integration. And actually, I like to to tell people not only is Bitcoin's fees lower, but at a brick-and-mortar store as well as e-commerce, the transaction time is much, much quicker. And this isn't just the amount of time to get your money. This is the amount of time it takes you to pay the person in front of you. So, you know, usually if you give someone cash, they count it out, they put it in the till, they give you your change, they print out the receipt. The nice thing about Bitcoin is, you, right now, the system relies on QR codes. So the person who wants to receive money, in this case the store, would bring up a QR code. You would scan it with your phone and be able to send them the amount they're requesting. And that actually cuts out some of the time in line as well. So if you think about a busy store like a grocery store or something, they could reduce the amount of time everyone has to wait. But right now, Bitcoin probably has its most underdeveloped sector in the brick-and-mortar area. Um, as people develop more apps that make it easier, it will become one of the up-and-coming um, development sectors for Bitcoin, as well as the fact that more stores will be using it as more people start to spend it. Brick-and-mortar stores are usually the last ones to get on the bandwagon because in e-commerce, anyone who has Bitcoin can go to those websites and buy something. Whereas with you know brick-and-mortar store, it depends on the fact that people around you in your physical location have them and are ready to spend them. But the great thing about it is you have a lot of choices. There's a lot of um, large businesses that are set up much like PayPal to allow you to accept Bitcoin. They can give you the option of either selling the Bitcoin right away for cash, or you can hold on to some of the Bitcoin if you want as well and speculate on the price. But the ability to do it is there. Right now, the customer base is not. And I think that's one of our big pushes as part of Bitcoin Hawaii is we want to get Bitcoin in the hands of spenders, and we want to get businesses to accept it, and we want to get this microeconomy for Bitcoin, 
moving. And once we do that, we're going to start to see all these benefits, this lower transaction fee, this faster transaction time. And once these things all kind of come together, we hope that this economy will prove that it's actually a better model than what we currently use. So uh, that's a great question, though. Certainly, I would say in your future, even if it's that QR code on your cash register, you know, Bitcoin could be a way to process business. And and I'd just like to point out real quick that we are seeing Bitcoin transactions happening on Craigslist daily. Mm -hmm. We want to. Oh, thanks, Roger, for calling in that question. Uh, We want to welcome Mike from Mililani to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hello. I'm curious. How does one get started? I heard you talking about mining Bitcoins, and how does that one? Great uh, question. Uh, w- w- mining Bitcoin used to be viable for the everyday person. Uh, nowadays, it's really kind of out of the realm of the, the common man because of these uh, the advent of ASICs, which are application-specific integrated circuits. Uh, so uh, a lot of people realize that you can actually create su- custom silicon to do the mining algorithm. And so... What has happened is the the Bitcoin mining has really become a, a higher barrier of entry, and so the the best way to get Bitcoin now is to you know receive it as payment from somebody else or to buy it online. And a, a good site that we like to refer people to is a U.S. company called Coinbase.com. Now, I from what I understand, I mean, it, it really boils down to a question of whether or not you want to buy the hardware that's going to do the mining versus buy the Bitcoin. And right now, it, it seems that. If you were to buy the hardware, you'd probably be losing money because you could actually buy the Bitcoin at cheaper than the amount of power that might be required to, to power that, that uh, computer to mine the Bitcoin. That- exactly, exactly. The, the, the electricity costs nowadays for uh, mining Bitcoin, at least on, a, on an average computer, is way higher than the, the coins that that would generate. Right, but um, but if you wanted to get started, and certainly I was eager to get started, I went to the site that uh, that you had recommended, Coinbase, Coinbase, and you know I bought myself two one hundredths of a Bitcoin mm-hmm. worth about twenty one dollars, and I'm very excited. Yeah. So right. you can get started very simply. Right. Want to welcome uh, Derek uh, from Kailua to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. I just want to say first and foremost, I'm a fan of complementary and alternative currencies. Uh, and have studied currencies around the country, including um, the Ithaca buck and a lot of uh, local currencies. And I guess my question is, uh, I see a lot of potential for alternative currencies in local communities, uh, for example, Kailua or Kaneohe, uh, a town like Ithaca issuing its own money to keep um, the currency within that community. Um, But how is, is Bitcoin not just another... Uh, I, I agree with you, yes, speeding up transactions, but who is that really benefiting? Is it benefiting the consumer? And certainly there's a profitability model um, for people promoting Bitcoin and then um, processing transactions. And, you know, so how is this ultimately, is this more of a benefit to the consumer than it is uh, another, you know, business enterprise uh, for people entering into the, mar- the Bitcoin market? Great question, Derek. I'm going to let Sam take this one because it's more economy-related. Okay. I think um, Bitcoin really shows its stripes in a couple main areas. And a lot of people say, well, we could make an alternative that does that as well. But no one has actually come out with something that's not backed by a company. So if you think about some of these things, Ithaca Coin and some of the other alternatives, they're usually created by a group or a company or in some cases a government as you know, local governments could create a sub-currency within their area. But what Bitcoin does is it really opens the door for anyone to use it. And being able to have anybody go in and buy Bitcoin and anybody be able to spend Bitcoin and they own that money, 
and it's not tied to anything, any kind of volatility. It allows the commerce to not just be centralized in a small area, but can be, you know, global. And the nice thing about Bitcoin, as we've mentioned, it's open source. And we had talked a little bit about Litecoin and um, Dogcoin. And what we see is people actually are creating these smaller community coins. You can see in the community that people are developing coins for very specific purposes. And not only are they sometimes communal in a certain area, but some of them aren't even necessarily working with the monetary aspect anymore. So some of the innovations in Bitcoin has been using this blockchain technology. It actually solves a lot of problems that we've had trouble with in the past using um, code over the Internet. And one of the things that we see is people are starting to use it more for proof of ownership. So not only is Bitcoin an innovator in the monetary space, but we see its innovation potential beyond monetary aspects. Authentication. Yep. And, and starting chain of, to go chain in, of title. Yeah, mm-hmm. starting to go into more complex issues. But at the same time, it's all handled by a program that someone can sit down and if they understand the code, they can say, yes, this is secure. Yes, I put my stamp of approval on it. And everyone can agree that this is a good system. Some of these alternatives might not be as robust and might not be um, as secure as well as audited by as many people. You know, if you have a very small internet money that you create, someone in the future might find a hole because you only have, you know, 20,000 people in a town using it. Whereas Bitcoin has millions of users, very intelligent um, people in computer science that are looking at the code and verifying that, yes, this is secure. Yes, it does work like it's supposed to. And the the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is anybody can join the network. Right. Well, you know, we've barely, barely scratched the surface, (laughs) obviously, of a very complex topic. And I know that Bitcoin Hawaii has an event coming up for people to get even more information. Tell us a bit about that. We do. Uh, On March 6th at 6 p.m. at the Box Jelly, we're going to hold a Bitcoin 201 security class. Uh, So for people that are holding Bitcoins, they want to be able to, you know, securely hold them. Because uh, the, the other aspect of Bitcoin is is that when you when you lose them, they're gone, and there's no insurance. Uh, so uh, we'll be holding that class for two hours, and then we're also giving uh, bi-monthly talks at the Box Jelly. So we'll have a Bitcoin 101 uh, class uh, in mid mid March. And where can someone go to find more information on your organization? Um, you can find us at BitcoinHawaii.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Look us up. We keep it updated with our latest events. Fantastic. Sounds great. McKay Davis and Sam Durham are founders of Bitcoin Hawaii. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for, thank having, you for us. having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week and we'll talk about Hawaii's role in the drone program. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at ByteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Sign and a song called Moonlight. See you next week on another edition of ByteMarks Cafe. Marks Cafe.